when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This evening's edition of Where the Road Takes Me is the first of a two-part program covering three different areas of interest. Firstly, I meet Michael Christopher Keane, the author of a book on the three earls of Castlehaven. It's a story of war, sex, corruption and land, from the Battle of Kinsale to the Great Famine and beyond. I'm also in the village of Kilbritton to meet members of the local historical society, who have just published their fourth historical journal. Two of the many stories that caught our interest are the connection with the Tusker Rock Air disaster 50 years ago and a comprehensive article on freedom fighter Commandant Charlie Hurley, of whom surprisingly little is known of. And finally, I go to Kinmare in County Kerry to meet hotelier and TV personality Francis Brennan. That conversation will be all about travel and its associated pleasures and mishaps. So thank you for joining us. Good evening and welcome to Where the Road Takes Me. War, sex, corruption, and land. Whatever about the first, the latter three areas of human weakness always garner interest. The story surrounding the three earls of Castlehaven, or the Lord Audleys of Cork and Kildare, have it all. Their story is the subject of a new book written by Michael Keane, a retired lecturer from University College Cork and a native of Tarbert in County Kerry. The first earl became one of Ireland's largest landowners. The second earl, whose wife Anne had blue blood in her veins and of the same family as that of Lady Diana Spencer, accused her husband of extreme sexual depravity and, following a sensational trial, he was later executed in London. His successor, the third earl, became a leading commander in the Catholic Confederacy uprising and led one of the very few, if only, successful resistances to Cromwell. So let's start with Lord Audley, who later became the first earl. His military career saw him involved in all three campaigns or battles of the Nine Years' War, the unsuccessful Essex Campaign, the Carew Campaign, and the Battle of Kinsale. His land acquisition once totaled 200,000 acres, so would the book's author Michael Keane agree that it's fair to look upon him as a very greedy man? He was, I suppose, given all his land acquisition in Ireland, or land grabbing, you could call it, he obviously was a very greedy man. He wound up with a, in excess of 200,000 acres in Ireland. Imagine that, starting with West Cork. I suppose he was probably a fairly good military man. What happened to him really was that the English got off very lightly in the Battle of Kinsale, but he was one of the unlucky ones. He got wounded. It's described as a shot in the thigh. So anyway, he left the army at that point, saw his opportunity. He knew that there would be a lot of land clearances and 
opportunities for getting his hands on land. So he got his hands firstly on the land of West Cork, the land of the O'Driscolls and the O'Mahonies, two big estates, settled himself and uh, decided he'd stay in Ireland for the rest of his time, really, in uh, Glenbarahan Castle in Castlehaven with his family. This is the first decade of the 1600s. Got a third large estate in North Cork then, around the Ballyhay area. So he had three large estates in Cork fairly soon after the Battle of Kinsale. By now, things were going pretty well for Lord Audley, so there was no reason whatsoever not to keep the momentum going. That momentum took him to Tipperary and the Midlands, where he acquired six more estates, which brought his total to nine, equaling 100,000 acres. That was only the start. The plantation of Ulster started then, and uh, he made a very good decision then. Apparently, an attractive 18-year-old daughter, Eleanor, the Attorney General in Ireland, Sir John Davis, was a 40-year-old bachelor, a very rotund man he was described as. He arranged that Eleanor would marry Sir John Davis. John Davis was, was the key man in arranging the plantation of Ulster. So the first Earl of Castlehaven and his family got another 100,000 acres in the plantation of Ulster. So that brought him to over 200,000 acres. Imagine trying Which to manage lot, that yeah. from, from West Cork. Going back to the Nine Years' War, the Essex campaign, the crew campaign, the Battle of Kinsale, the Essex campaign didn't go very well, as you said, for the English. How was the first Earl regarded in England overall, his performances in Ireland? He must have been regarded pretty well because he wasn't the first Earl of Castlehaven at that point. It was later in life that he was appointed. Essex went back to England disobeying orders. He was supposed to take on Hugh O'Neill in the north. That's why he was really over here. But he did everything but to take on Hugh O'Neill. He was probably afraid of him, maybe with good reason. So he came down to Munster instead. Essex's quote was, he had an army of 16,000, the biggest ever seen in the country. His quote was that he would go and cut off the branches down south before he had tackled the route. I think he was afraid of Hugh O'Neill. Extraordinarily, he agreed to have a peace accord with Hugh O'Neill. Then he disobeyed orders, went off to England and wound up being beheaded. So Essex, who was the, the leading man in England, really, in many ways, um, wound up being beheaded. But um, Lord Audley is the family name. Lord Audley, as he was then, survived all of that, with credit, I think. He probably kept his head down and stayed out of trouble. And then went off on his land acquisitions spree after the Battle of Kinsale. The period we're talking about, the mid-16th to the mid-17th century, that was a period of time which saw a lot of, as you described them, fundamental changes in Irish history which were to last for quite some time. Oh yeah, I mean we talk about modern times and our independence. I mean this was the time of the first big change in Ireland whereby the clans who controlled most of Ireland really apart from the Pale up to that period lost their control and it was really I suppose an English takeover during that uh, century which happened gradually but very forcefully I suppose after the Battle of Kinsale which was a very deep very significant time. The English then pretty well took over the country and planted an awful lot of it. That, that was their time. And they sort of ruled in, I suppose, English or Anglo-Irish. They owned most of the land for the next uh, couple of centuries until our modern times. Well, semi-modern anyway. Yeah. In 1617, Lord Audley, or the first Earl of Castlehaven, died. He passed on his estate of 200,000 acres as well as his English estate, which seemingly he had largely ignored. 
Now, he took the title Earl of Castlehaven, which is interesting. Firstly, Castlehaven was his home for a lot of this period. That was Lynbarren Castle, just in the west of the harbour, which is only, unfortunately, it has fallen down now. Yeah. There's just a heap of stones there. He obviously must have liked the place, said that he took the title first Earl of Castlehaven. He died peacefully after a long life and handed over to the second Earl of Castlehaven. Following his father's death in 1617, Sir Mervyn Touche, 12th Baron Audley, 2nd Earl of Castlehaven, and eldest son of the 1st Earl, seceded to large land holdings and titles in both Ireland and England. He first married Elizabeth Barnham, who came from one of the wealthiest families in London. Elizabeth died in 1622, and the 2nd Earl married into royalty. His second wife, Anne, was the co-heir to the 5th Lord Derby and his wife, Alice Spencer of Valthorpe the same Spencers as that of the late Lady Diana Spencer. This was really the beginning of the end for the second Earl, but mostly of his own making. They had enormous wealth, but things must have gone fairly wrong in the marriage, of which the second Earl, it seems, was quite responsible for a lot of it, and took a charge against him to say that he assisted in her rape by one of the servants. The second Earl was very friendly, and we can put inverted commas on that, with his servants. Which wasn't the way that the aristocracy treated their servants at the time. No, there was meant to be a great gap between the aristocracy and the servants, and that wasn't there in his case. They sat at the family table, some of his favourite servants and so on, and the third Earl, his son again, who was my favourite of the whole lot of them really, he felt that he was going to be disinherited and so he took charges as well that his father wasn't behaving as as a a leading aristocrat should behave. It was a sensational trial. The two charges were assisting in the rape of his wife Anne, who was kind of royalty I suppose and uh, also sodomy. Both on paper were very serious charges at the time but in England in practical terms there wasn't that much notice normally taken of sodomy. Rape was more serious but it was a difficult charge to, 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 to prove. Now, he was brought to face the, the music before 27 lords of the realm for these two charges. At least 10 of the lords that were sitting in judgment were closely related to Anne. Now, Anne, interestingly, she was the eldest daughter of Lord Derby, and when he died, uh, she became heir to the throne. Her mother, even more interesting maybe, was Alice Spencer of Altorp, of uh, Lady Diana fame. So Anne was the first of the Spencers who just didn't quite make it to the top job in Buckingham Palace, and uh, Lady Diana, like, like was, of course, in modern times, didn't either. So he faced the charges, and he was found guilty by majority verdict on both counts. It was a sensational trial. The tabloids and the printing presses were just active at that time and it became the sensation of the age and even lasted through the centuries. The case or trial of the second Earl turned out to be quite interesting and set a number of legal precedents. For instance, his wife gave evidence against her husband on a charge of marital rape, which still has modern connotations. His son and his daughter-in-law also gave evidence. There's another story there, which we probably don't have time to go into, because the son thought he was going to be disinherited. Did he have good reason for for thinking that way? He had very good reason. The the charge that they had was that the second Earl wanted his daughter-in-law, young daughter-in-law, they married young at that time, to, I suppose, produce a child in which his favourite servant would be the father, rather than his actual son, the the, the third Earl. And the the third Earl thought this young child, who he really wanted to... 
succeed rather than himself. Yeah. So he, he became quite implicated in it as well. So he was found guilty by majority verdict. There was lots of appeals that maybe it might be commuted with um, Charles I, but it wasn't in the end. And uh, Charles did one thing all right. He said that even though he was a convicted felon, that he wouldn't be hanged, that as an aristocrat, he would instead, he could opt for beheading if he wished, which he did. Right. So he was beheaded. Two of the servants, one of whom was Irish, were also hanged as a result of the trial. Two important things in the case actually were that one, they made great play on the fact that this guy was kind of more Irish than English and Irishness had a very bad uh, connotation. And the other thing is, very surprisingly for this family, they were more or less Catholic and that was another very big negative. So he didn't treat the servants in the way that normally he should treat them. He was apparently mostly Catholic even though they could waver a bit from time to time. And uh, he had a lot of Irishness about him with Irish um, friends that he'd brought over from Cork to be some of his servants. So all of that went against him. And they said that uh, given the fact that um, a lot of them were, you know, the same extended family of of Anne bringing the charges anyway, he was found guilty in the end. So he he was executed in 1631. And did his son then attempt to backtrack on those charges? Yeah, the son was one of those. The son never thought, I'd say, things would go that far. He was uh, even making appeals to the king for um, uh, that could be commuted. And let's call them the jury in that case. There wasn't much significance put on making sure that the jury wasn't lopsided because, as you said, so many would have been on yeah, Anne's yeah, side. Yeah. I'd say there wasn't much significance. I'd go further and say there was practically none at all. I'd say that the char- I'd say he was guilty before they heard it, <laughs> they heard it really uh, when all is said and done. And the yeah. trial was yeah. just going through the motions. Yeah, uh, with the two servants then, one of them was a Fitzpatrick from Ireland. Uh, one of the judges was heard to say, uh, don't bother about the details of the, 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 the case against them, just hang them. Yeah, I have a quote in the, in the, in the book I wrote, actually, which has the, the more precise wording that, that, that this man was, was quoted as saying. The two servants mentioned by Michael Keane, who were involved with the second Earl, were Giles Broadway and Florence Fitzpatrick from Cork. Whatever about Broadway, Fitzpatrick seems to have been an articulate, intelligent and honourable man. Their trial took place six weeks after the execution of their master or the second Earl. Fitzpatrick questioned a number of legal decisions that were made against him during the trial, most of whom would have been considered laughable except for their serious consequences for the accused. In fact, the king requested a stay of execution to consider one of the legal arguments put forward by Fitzpatrick. However, the king was eventually persuaded to ignore them, and a date was set for the execution of both men. In his book, Michael Keane writes about the executions. On the appointed day, both men were brought by cart to Tyburn, The executioner firstly tied the rope around Fitzpatrick's neck. Fitzpatrick began to pray to Christ, Mary and the saints, as would befit his Irish Catholic background. Despite being rebuked by the spectators for praying to Mary, Fitzpatrick persisted, saying, Oh yes, the Blessed Virgin never forsook or failed any that trusted in or called upon her. He turned to Broadway, calling on him to also die proudly in the Catholic faith. However, Broadway did not respond. Fitzpatrick then gave his final speech, stating that the testimony he gave at the trial of the second earl was true and, tellingly, that one of the judges, Lord Dorset, had promised him immunity from prosecution if he would testify. He finally offered forgiveness to all, asked for prayers for his soul, and ended with private prayers. In every respect, one may conclude that he died honourably in a manner that few might be able to replicate. On next week's programme, we conclude the story and deal with the third earl of Castlehaven. The book, The Earls of Castlehaven, is available in all bookshops in Cork and beyond. Or you can email the author, Michael Keane. His email address is mjagkeane, all one word, at gmail.com. Coming up next, we're off to Kinmare to meet hotelier, author and TV personality, Francis Brennan.
Part two of this evening's edition of Where the Road Takes Me finds me in the Park Hotel in Kinmare in County Kerry. I'm here to meet hotelier, author and TV personality Francis Brennan. His new book, which outlines his travel experiences over many years, is called A Gentleman Abroad. Well, being in the tourist business and being involved with many tourism bodies, it does, of course, offer him the ideal opportunity to do what he loves best, and that's travel. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'm lucky with my job. Actually, just this morning now, I was looking at January, February, because Tourism Ireland launched their tourist programmes for next year, and Relly and Chateau, a hotel group which we're a member of worldwide too, they, they have theirs out a couple of months. So I, I was up in the office yesterday trying to dovetail the trips, and it looks like I'll be in Canada for five days, I'll be in California and all down the, uh, the coast there for five days, and then I'll be in Dallas, Atlanta, back to New York for five days at the moment. And in the middle of that three weeks they're they're all five-day trips so there's three five-day trips that's three weeks there's a week i have a week in between which i wouldn't come home for so therefore that affords me a week to either holiday or do something else so that's the way life has always been there's always a few days available here or there between promotions and that's when i tend to travel a good bit Fun and laughter on a summer holiday No more worries for me or you For a week or two We're going where the sun shines brightly We're going where the sea is blue We've seen it in the movies Now let's see if it's true Really, America would be the place that everybody would love to go at some stage, me included. I know it's special to you. What is so special about the country and the people? Yeah, what I like about America, everything works. You know, like the plugs work, the water works, the car hire is there. Everything is on, on a system, on a flow, and it works. Whereas if you go to other countries, like if you went to Morocco, well, the plug mightn't work, or the light mightn't work, or the electricity might go off. So America affords everybody the absolute, like nothing is going to go wrong. So that's always terrific when you go there. And also, it's such a diverse country. You know, like earlier in the year now, I did um, a Route 66 trip, which takes you from Chicago down through the heartland of Mississippi and St. Louis, on over through Arizona, Tucson, into Nevada, into California, like a 3,400 mile trip. But I will say one thing, you know, I came back to Kenmare after that trip and it took me 22 days. And I always say it when I was driving down Blackwater out by heading down towards Steam, where my home is, in Tehilla. And I look across the bay and I think, and I live here because on that 3,400 mile trip in America, only twice did I say, oh my goodness, isn't that gorgeous? Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Because a lot of it would be um, urban sprawl or desert, a huge amount of desert where you go 40 or 50 miles on a straight road, no rights or lefts with a big arctic trucks you know 40 footers all right and left of you right because they travel all across america all the time and you mightn't see a, a house because the, the road would be through a desert and they would be pocketed like they'd be like sort of like a house say in pantry and a house in killarney if you know what i mean mm-hmm. which is hard for us to understand but there was a lot of desert and the heartland of america is quite dry so it was kind of interesting the way that we went from chicago which is windy and wet when we were there down through 
roaring heat in Mississippi, then over through the desert, roaring heat, and then out to California. And is it like the Ring of Kerry, where you travel one route, you're supposed to go east-west? Yeah, funny enough. Now, you can go either way. You can go yeah. from, it, it, There's no actual, you know, it's... But the Route 66 is a particular route that was used by the horse and carriage that went west all those years back. Now, the road still exists, and it will be a tiny road, like a little side road that we would have here, where you'd have to pull in if something came towards you. But they are parallel to the existing, to a highway, perhaps. So... The purists will say, if you're to be a Route 66 person, you stay on that little road the whole time. But you could be going for 60 miles on that little road, all right? Mm-hmm. And you're parallel to a five-lane highway where they've put in the new highway. So we always skipped out to the highway because there was probably nothing between one or two places. Like Funks Grove is a place, a graveyard with a lot of Irish buried there interesting enough they were only commemorated back in the, in the, the 80s. They ended up going out to work on the railroads uh, when they were doing the railroads across America and they they got some disease or maybe they weren't open to international diseases and about 60 of them died and they were just thrown on the side of the railway lines because the railway lines was all business and were keep going, keep going, keep going and this man, Mr Funk uh, he was a, a local businessman, big farmer he heard about it and he took the bodies of these 60 Irish people right. and he buried them in a mass grave where they were forgotten about until the 70s or 80s when a local sort of group that looks after it, like local history and that came across the story looked at it and resurrected the whole thing and they got a lovely commemorative stone and they have the whole grave the grave there like nobody would know their names of the people that were buried there of course but um, they have this lovely, lovely and out of that one good gesture on behalf of Mr Funk they ended up having a, a proper graveyard which is there now and it's beautifully kept and all the rest and we put the day we were there this car pulled up and this lady young girl in her 40s came out she says oh she says you must be irish and i said how do you know we're irish and we hadn't even spoken she says because you're there at the grave and she says funny enough all year long irish people come in to say little prayer at the grave of the poor people that were so they're nearly better commemorated than some of our own relatives probably here in ireland yeah. and she went on then to tell us that story about how it how it originally came so they're the sort of gems of life that you find when you're on the road the costliest part of that journey I believe you travelled in what's known as an RV yeah which is and a, yeah, a caravan on wheels a caravan on wheels the costliest part of that was the petrol because yeah. the Americans don't do diesel do they no, no. see they only do petrol so <laughs> we paid it was about $130 a day for the petrol which is right. a lot yeah, yeah it's yeah. a lot and it, like you could actually visibly see the dial going down as you drove along all right now we would do maybe three or four hundred miles a day i suppose that was the average what we were doing all right but it was it was a cost that i i, I just couldn't believe that it would eat the fuel so much it just shows because i have a diesel car and I, I just fill it up and it goes forever it's unbelievable compared to the the, the but they're going to win out at the end now because petrol is back in as we it all is, know yeah, yeah. so we'll all be getting the, very hard to get a petrol car now yeah difficult yeah, enough anyway yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so that'll be things so that that the, i mean it wasn't a cheap trip now can i say there was myself and a colleague from school, Frank Dowling, we were in school together, and um, we, we shared the cost and all the rest. But, like, it was about 270 a day to rent the unit, okay? It was uh, 130 a day for petrol, roughly, right? And then you have your food and all the rest. So it wouldn't be a cheap trip now yeah, for those going. Now, as, but the RV that we had, it could sleep, it could sleep six people if... You want no? I couldn't dream of having six people in it myself, but there was space for six people. All right, um, if if you'd made up the double bed where the table, the kitchen table is, you can make it up into a double bed. We didn't ever do that, but um, it would be, it would be, it wouldn't be, it would be very cost effective then. Unfortunately for us, it wasn't. But it was, it was a trip. It was a lifetime trip, and I had always spoken about it. And my nieces and nephews gave it to me for Christmas, which was very nice. They reckon you can do it in two weeks. They recommend a month. You did it in three weeks, is it? Yeah, we took twenty-two days. 
we started the 1st of June and we came home on the 22nd of June, right? Um, now we went off it a little bit. We went, we, like, we went to Sedona, which is a lovely part of Arizona. Those, you know, they call it the Painted Mountains. They have those lovely, like, Wild West Mountains as we would know them here, kind of John Wayne job in the mm-hmm. background. Those lovely, we went there for a day and we went to Las Vegas for two days. So we added a couple of days. You could do it in two weeks, okay? But you'd be pushing it now every day. Do you yeah. know what I mean? You wouldn't be dilly-dallying. Whereas we were able to dilly-dally a little, which was the plan, and we had a great time. We're going where the sun shines brightly We're going where the sea is blue We've seen it in the movies Now let's see if it's true Everybody has a summer holiday Doing things they always wanted to So we're going on a summer holiday To make our dreams come true For me and you Prior to taking a holiday, would you be the type of person who would plan and research? Because people might say, oh, I can't afford to go to Australia. I can't afford to go to Africa. There are ways around it, and there are cheaper ways of traveling there, I presume. Would you research and plan before you go? I plan hugely before we go, always, yeah, yeah. And I'd always look at flights and different routings. You know, say you're going to Australia now, okay? I would immediately look at the following. I would look at London, out of London, like Dublin to London, London to Australia. Frankfurt, okay? Paris, because if you want to book with international airlines that all go through those cities, sometimes there can be a difference of 200, 300 euros of difference on a fare. And you have to stop somewhere. So whether I stop going to Australia in London, Frankfurt or Paris, doesn't matter to me. If you do the fare, you know, I do that. I just call in, you know, Skyscanner, which is fantastic. It's an online booking agent. Uh, Skyscanner, they are terrific. They would allow, you'd go in there and you put in where you want to go and they give you all the different routings, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes, I mean, I've seen, we have, because I travel a bit with a group, we, we, we can change. Like, we went to South Africa last year and now not on the Grand Tour, which I did in South Africa, but I was there privately for a conference in September and we saved over 800 euros when we were going business class on our ticket because we went with Ethiopian Airlines out of Dublin to Addis Ababa to Johannesburg. Yeah. Now, most people would go Dublin to London, London to Johannesburg, but the difference was 800 euros per person, which is an awful lot of money. It's quite substantial. So it does pay to route around and have a look. You obviously do not have a fear of flying. No, no, I, I, I've no, I, I just get on the plane and I just, I, well, actually, I go sleep. I'm a great man on the plane. I fall asleep nearly immediately. So I don't worry about flying at all. I've, you've no control over it. If you want to get from me to be, you just go and forget the nonsense about being nervous. My whole thing is we're not supposed to be up there. And if, if something goes wrong, well, you can't exactly pull up the handbrakes, no. step outside and, and lift up the bonnet and, and yeah. see what's next. But just, there's so many flights and nothing goes wrong. Do you know what I mean? Listen, yeah. you're probably a safe, go back now to Bandon in the car today, you're probably a safest flying to London, yeah. to be honest. All right. Yeah. And you can't live, I can't live my life saying, oh, I'm free to fly because it just wouldn't work. Right. Travel or holidays are rarely without minor or even sometimes major mishaps or inconveniences, let's call them. So picture Francis Brennan, barefoot in the middle of the night, walking from the hotel through a wooded area and back to his rented chalet. 
Suddenly, in the darkness, in a forest, he's surrounded by wild and large and very angry crabs. It's a barefoot resort. You're not allowed to wear shoes. Now, I hate that because I don't. I like to be in my shoes because I have a bad foot and I need to be supported, all right? So I don't really like it. But anyway, I had been uh, diving, scuba diving two days before and I got a little uh, cut on my heel. I iodined it, stuck a plaster on it and was delighted with life. Left it alone, didn't touch it, it was grand. Um, went scuba diving that the next day and the next day and then this night I'm going home and this crab bites my toe and I think, oh! And I have a tilly lamp, you know, like a hurricane lamp going home along through this forest. So I get home anyway, back to my ha- bedroom, all right? And I think, God, that's very sore. And I'm looking down at Now, the toe, toe is fine. It has no sign of a crab, but he did bite my toe. You actually had to shake him off, had you? I had, yeah. I had to click him. When I, when him, I, yeah. I kicked him off, I heard him clacking through the trees. I always remember. <laughs> bang, bang, bang. It was, they're big crabs. Now, they're land crabs, not sea crabs. Yeah. So anyway, that was fine. So I look at my foot and I think, God, what's going on there? And then I took the plaster off. Okay, which had no sign of anything, only a, a normal plaster on the back on my heel, and it was as black as the ace of spades. All right, as your shoe would be black. Okay, right. so I thought. Ah. So the next day, I went. The next morning, I got went up to the infirmary. They have a small little, uh, little first aid centre, and the nurse there was very excited. And she got the doctor in from another island. He had to fly in, and he was give, he gave me massive injections. And he said to me, mm. he says you want to be careful now. He says you're close to gangrene. He says, and you know that can't be cured, so you have to be careful. So they kept dosing me, and dosing me. I couldn't fly too much. All right. Um, he came back the next day, and then the next day, and I was on massive doses of antibiotics. I flew. I was wheelchaired through Los Angeles, wheelchaired into New York. I stayed with friends in New York, went back to the hospital there because I wasn't happy. And they they were treating me. And I was on antibiotics from the end of, I would say, November until the end of January because they were trying to get rid of this. Anyway, it cleared up, thanks be to God. Very lucky. But it just shows you. And when I inquired afterwards, the plaster was the wrong thing to do because it incubated the bugs behind the plaster, between the plaster and the wound, and I should have left it open and then it, yeah, yeah just to tell you I thought I was doing the right thing but if you left it open the air would have cleared it up with the iodine and the antibiotic and you know the, the injection that I got but of course we didn't do that so lucky for the crab that he bit me because I didn't know I had a bad leg I wouldn't I might have gone on two more days and be really in trouble then so lucky lucky and we'll be off on our travels again with Francis Brennan on the programme next week. His book is entitled A Gentleman Abroad. Well, from Kinmare in County Kerry, where the road takes me, is to the village of Kilbritton in part three in a few moments. On Saturday, December 1st last, Kilbritton Historical Society launched their fourth journal, Articles and Records from the Past. It's a publication that they are rightfully proud of. The articles within are interesting, comprehensive and well-researched. There is an article on the Tusker Rock Air tragedy of 50 years ago. The little-known life of Commandant Charlie Hurley is included, as are articles on Coolmain Castle, Stopford Price and the rare stained glass cruciform of St. Patrick's Church in Kilbritton. 
This evening I pay a visit to the village to meet members of the society and delve further into some of the articles. I'm a firm believer that the importance of historical societies to their local respective areas is not often truly appreciated. In the case of Kilbritton, Dermot O'Donovan, who's a native of East Cork, is the journal's editor, and he's also a former PRO of Kilbritton Historical Society. We're delighted. It's always a, a big relief to get to this point in time, John. So we're very proud of our, our four volumes of, of the journal. It started off very slowly, I suppose, or, or quickly in some ways, because it was very much uh, the first volume that we did back in 2015 after we formed the Society. And it was you know, one of the aim, primary aims of, of what we were doing was to bring together old articles and archive them and any mentions of Kilbritton in previous publications, as well as generating new work going forward. So the first year we did it, it was quite a rush job over a week weekend and we put it together and it came out very well but we've learned lessons since then and um, I think every every year it's been better and better and we've developed the method of doing it and we've developed our uh, photography and the format and the articles have been superb so really it's a testament to the people um, who contribute to the journal more than anything else so we're, we're, we're delighted and everybody has a right I think in the community to be proud of it. Talk to me about the amount of work that goes into a journal like this Well I suppose it really starts as uh, you know once you get one published you're kind of starting for the next one almost you know but I suppose you're really starting in in springtime and from an editing point of view I I make contact with people and I try to you know develop relationships with people who are willing to work with us and willing to contribute whether it be images or poems or uh, historical articles and you're trying to constantly network and make connections with people and um, just bring them along or even ask people that they might be interested so that you can generate new articles and new material because some people have lots and lots of skill and they have lots of information information and they have huge local knowledge and you know it's a case of trying to seek those people out and stimulate them into actually making a contribution that will be valuable which which they have done and so the, the work begins really at springtime and then through summer and our deadlines then for articles um, tend to be around the beginning of to mid-September and so I'm constantly once I get those articles in and uh, I'm a secondary school teacher so I go back to school in September and then all the articles start to flow in in September so I find myself incredibly busy um, in that period September October November period trying to take in articles and then my job as editor is to uh, obviously edit the articles and to, to correct them and to just chewing and throwing involved with the authors but also I try to find appropriate images and appropriate material to put with those articles just to I suppose not liven them up but to make it more readable and to give more illustrations uh, to the readership because I think that, that really um, helps people to understand the area and to promote the area as well. Fifty years ago, on Sunday morning, March 24, 1968, an Aer Lingus Viscount plane, the St. Phelan, took off from Cork Airport, heading for Heathrow in London. Unfortunately, it never made its destination. The plane crashed off the Wexford coast, south of the Tusker Rock. None of the 57 passengers and four crew members on board survived. But like a lot of tragedies, its effect stretched far and wide. The village of Kilbritton did not escape. On December 1st last, the Historical Society's journal was launched by Lieutenant Colonel David Cowig from Kilkenny, a member of the Irish Army. 
David's father Joe, a native of Kilbritton, lost his life in the air tragedy. A very comprehensive article on the crash is included in the journal. It was written by Anne-Marie Desmond of Ballycatton. Dennis O'Brien is chairperson of Kilbritton Historical Society. The lady who wrote the article is um, Anne-Marie Desmond from Ballycatton here in the parish. Her husband is Miles McSwiney and he's Richard from Coachford and his aunt was Nancy Shorten and Nancy Shorten and her son Thomas were being driven towards Cork Airport that, that evening by Miles' father and um, when Miles returned home to Coachford he turned on the radio and he was just after hearing the, the news that the plane had crashed. So it was that soon after saying goodbye to Mud Nancy and Thomas that he heard the news and she left three children behind her in Wimbledon in London. So that was local connection to Anne-Marie. There was also uh, another local connection that there was two men nearby here, Michael Joe Coig from Burren, who was a kind of a noted hurler at the time back in his young days in Cumberton. He died in the crash as well as uh, John Nine from Ballinspital and both of them were, uh, John Nine was a vet and, John and Michael uh, did dairy science and they both worked in Moor Park, which is now Taggish in Fermoy. They were travelling over to uh, Reading in the UK for a symposium. I think it was milking machines and mastitis control when they were killed in the crash. So it was a very tragic time at the time. I, they found, I believe, Michael Joe was the only man found afterwards. There was a theory that he his body had floated because he was on cortisone at the time. He is believed he picked up polio while he was working in Reading and uh, he was on, I think, some sort of cortisone or some medication. Because of that and his body floated? Yeah, yeah. I, did, I did an interview on the book with uh, his sister-in-law, Hanora Coig, and uh, my aunt, and she said that uh, he was on medication for quite a while and his face looked kind of bloated before he died, so he wanted the best of health. Again, like, like I said, he had polio. Yeah, he was, he'd be a, a very good athlete in his younger days, but he died at the age of 32, which is quite a young age for a man like that. But in his later years, he had he used to wear a caliper on his legs, so he walked with a bit of a limp. At least it was good for the family that his body was found, but for poor old John Nine, his body was never found, and you know he left behind his wife, uh, Mary Crowley, and, and his two children, and that was a sad time. I know Father Charlie, his brother, Father Charlie Nine, Caroline, he was in Peru at the time. He told me that he had a, a premonition on the day that it happened, and when he read the newspaper, it was actually no surprise to me. He said that even though it was a different time difference between Peru and, and Ireland, he, he said that uh, he wasn't too sure of the time but he knew that the, it was pretty much the same time that he had that, that image so he found a bit of consolation that, that Father Charlie's words you know he thought that it was possibly you know his time to go yeah. but it is sad for his family that his body was never found and we found this year being the 50th anniversary of the Tuscarawk air tragedy that would be a good idea to insert an article in the historical journal sure. commemorating both men because again like, like Charlie I think that when I was growing up I wouldn't have known too much about Michael Joe Cowick or John Nine, but I've often heard my father who was friends with both men and you can learn I suppose first hand history from these men and then you get more interested in the kind of getting the nitty gritty details articles written about them so No true cause of the crash has been identified there are no shortage of theories or opinions, even reports. But to this day, the reason why 61 people lost their lives off the Tusker Rock 50 years ago is still clouded in as much uncertainty as it was back then. Yeah, I think there was, as far as I know, there was, uh, Anne-Marie had uh, three kind of main theories, what's believed, and one was that uh, an aircraft or another drone was in the vicinity and it hit the plane, which is a Viscount. Uh, possibly there was a bird or flight collided with the tail of the Viscount. I think when it was found, only a part of the plane was found, but the, the entire tail section was missing. And the third reason is possibly a mechanical failure of the Viscount. But there's been nothing definitive. There's been a report in 1970, again in 2002, with was aviation experts from Australia and France. Their main feeling was mechanical failure, but they couldn't rule out that there was a mid-air collision. There's other theories that there was talks of military tests over Wales and that at the time, but again, Again, I think at the time there was a bit of delay in salvaging the plane itself and there was also eyewitness accounts that were kind of dismissed at hand so I think that probably didn't help the investigation.
area would be complete historically without a castle or castles, and Kilbritton isn't found wanting here. Coolmain Castle was built by the de Courcy family sometime in the early 1400s or earlier. Come the following century, they had lost it to the McCarthy Riocks, the Princes of Desmond. The castle is now owned by the Disney family, the same Disney family as in the late Walt Disney, filmmaker and cartoon maestro. The article in the journal on the castle was written by Triona O'Sullivan Enright, who was born and reared close by. They'll be very familiar with the building they see today, which is the Coolmain Castle, when they drive down after the Pink Elephant. What they won't know is that the real original castle was a little bit further to the south, and that was very near um, my home place. We used to walk past it, going down to the beach through the fields, and I always knew there was an ancient castle there, but I didn't know anything more about it. Um, And very little is recorded in any of the books you find on, on castles. So the date as to when the ancient original castle is not recorded, but it is thought to have been built by either a de Courcy or one of the McCarthy's of Kilbritton Castle. And they would have been in Kilbritton Castle from the 13th century onwards. So tell me a little bit about it. So So it was probably, again, very little is known about it. I did the article just to try and gather as much information that I could on it. It was probably built as a lookout for the main headquarters at Kilbritton. Like it would have been an ideal spot by the beach. You'd have a good uh, lookout spot there to, you know, store goods that they were probably bringing in by sea. Um, so that's probably what it what it was. Just a, a little small lookout for. Kilburton Castle. And who lived uh, there down through the years and who so would be the famous people? Down, so the McCarthy's had it until it was taken by the Crown Forces in 1640s. After that there was a company called the Hollow Sword Blade Company. They they sounded a bit like the NAMA of the day. They kind of were operating as a, a bank under the guise of a, being a sword company. They ended up selling it to a well-known family called the Stoles or the Stalls and they'd be very well known family connected with Kilbritton Castle. They had the castle then for the next two centuries but it, th- things got a little bit confusing then because as that ancient castle went into decline the Stalls probably built the mansion that we see today so you kind of had two cool main castles on the go. And what sort of condition is it in present day? So the current Coolmain Castle is fantastic. It's um, the Disney's own it currently, the Disney family. Bob Willoughby was a famous Hollywood photographer. He had it prior to the Disney's. And back in the 20th century, like a lot of renovations were, were done to the original, to that mansion. The mansion we see today is a tower was added to it by a Colonel Bernard. He used to like to play soldiers <laughs> with um, his army. He used to bring them out in the 18th century and marched them up and down on the big field in front on the lawns in front of the castle mm-hmm. so he would have added the tower that was kind of the fashion of the time so it turned into a castle then and um, but currently it's in a superb condition and the garden surrounding it also as you said, not a lot is known about it. So how difficult was it to research a castle like that? I suppose what what I love about this historical society group and what I love about doing these articles is going around talking to the people of the area who have a great knowledge and that knowledge will go when this generation goes. So, you know, talking to neighbours, the Cronans, the Maddens, the McCarthy family that live there in the Blue House that everyone will know at Coolmain Beach, they actually can claim descent from the original McCarthy Riocks and Bridget McCarthy 
McCarthy and Maudie Holland were told this um, children in the 30s were, were told this by their teacher you know in primary school that they, they were connected to, to this original family so speaking to the likes of Bridget and Maudie um, I really really enjoy that part of doing the articles and I think everybody was saying here you don't have to have a university degree to write for no, the journal you're encouraging would, people to do so um, yeah. definitely fall into that category and I would encourage anyone you know in the area who has an interest in history like myself to, to join what I have learned from joining this group is unbelievable I can't believe how much I didn't know what's on our doorstep and it's mainly from talking to people that do have the knowledge and unfortunately it's the sign of our times we don't talk as much as they did in their generation and I really want this to be recorded before it's lost yeah I presume there should be more of an emphasis on local history in schools anyway definitely I know we're all you know learning about things in Dublin and we, we've actually found that from our trips that we've done we've gone to Dublin a few times but we find that people really love doing the local trips um, Michael Larkin did a superb one this past year just along the coastline from Timoleague over to Harpview Bridge fascinating people who've you know the, the people who are not the blow-ins <laughs> have lived their years and years learned things that they you know about the area that they never knew Triona O'Sullivan Enright Kilbritton Historical Society's journal volume 4 which has just been launched is available in bookshops and other outlets in West Cork We're back in Kilbritton again next week to hear about Commandant Charlie Hurley and the stained glass cruciform in the local church. Hotelier and TV personality Francis Brennan will take us on another world tour and we conclude the story of the three earls of Castlehaven. John Foot was in sound this evening and thank you for joining us yet again. Until Sunday evening next at 7, from all on Where the Road Takes Me and myself, John Green, we wish you a safe and enjoyable week. Goodbye for now. on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks italian leather jackets and so much more and the best part about quince they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe ethical and responsible manufacturing elevate your style without the elevated price tag with quince go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.